0: Everyone is waiting for something, someone. Sometimes anticipating, sometimes agonizing. We all have an expectation for what's to come. Even Jesus arrived with a wait. Although we turn a single page, 400 years of silence spanned the gap between the final prophecies we read in the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus. No prophet, no voice, no signs, no wonders. You can almost hear the questions. Did God care? Had he vanished? Was he ever really there? Finally, with a single cry in a stable in Bethlehem, the silence was broken. The arrival of a baby born in the midst of darkness and despair was hope fulfilled, a miracle in motion. And the good news? In the same way it did 2,000 years ago, Advent brings with it the assurance that no matter what you're waiting on, God promises hope is on the way.
1: Welcome to New Life This Morning. My name is Pastor Michael Hands. I'm the lead minister of these families of churches. where one church is in three locations and with our fourth location being online as well. Massive welcome to everyone joining us online. Um, I'm I'm excited for this morning. I'm filled with faith that God is going to move in power and might. Now, if you're new to church today and you're wondering, wow, do they not like singing here? How come we only sing one song? We've flipped the service, friends. So we finish with worship. Because we want to preach on why we believe Jesus is worthy to be adored. And then we want to adore him together. And so if you're thinking, number one, I walked in at 20 past so I could avoid the singing. Well, I'm so sorry. Sorry. If you came early because you're like, I want to sing more, you are going to, friends, the good news of the gospel of the kingdom today. I'm excited for what God's about to do. The reason why I'm preaching so early in the service is at the end of this service, we have our New Life Care Christmas hamper appeal and the motorbikes rocking up as well. And so I've got to do a lot in about 30 minutes. And then we want to worship God. Then we want to celebrate what he has done. And I've got to be honest, friends, to do that, I'm going to need a lot of help. Amen? Amen? Who said amen? Let's pray. Gracious God. One thing I know is that we need you. We need you. This sermon we're about to do doesn't make sense without you. So come, inhabit our story. Inhabit our service, Holy Spirit, in a way where we know you, can sense you. Inhabit every room, living room, lounge room, car right now that's tuning in. For your glory, less of me, more of you, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Do you remember where you were on September 11, 2001? Do you remember where you were September 11, 2001? If you were under the age of 20, the answer would be no. In fact, what's scary, friends, is that there is, uh, the, the generation of young adults coming through now have never existed in a world with the World Trade Center Towers. That should make you feel old. It makes me feel old, and I'm 32. So you know, there's there's this reality. We're like, wow. Yet this moment defined so much of the history you and I have experienced. I remember distinctly coming downstairs on the September, um, September, yeah, September 11, 2001, and I came downstairs. It would have been September, disregard. And I came downstairs and turned on the TV, only to see the smoking rubble of the World Trade Center towers. I was 12 years old, and in that moment, I thought. I didn't understand what was happening. I didn't know what was going on, but I realized in the days and weeks to come that the world had profoundly changed. The world had profoundly changed. Do you remember where you were? Do you remember where you were? I've been to New York. In uh, I, I went there a couple of years later, and uh, and I found I w- walked the side of the World Trade Center towers where I saw the cavernous ruin and the the mon- the monument set up to denigrate and also offer this sense of sacred moment of remembrance of what happened on that day. This was a historical moment, friends, where our world was changed. Where so much of the reality of the war and terror that has existed for most of the last two decades happened because of this incident. So much of the world of fear, of terror, of ununderstanding political and foreign policy that our children are growing up in happened because of this moment. It was a reality-changing moment. The reason why I say that is because we know that this happened, that this impacted history, and something shifted on that day. Very few people, when I say, hey, do you remember September 11, would say, I don't really believe that was real. Some of you have walked the ground. Some of you have seen it. Whilst you weren't there on the day, you've heard eyewitness accounts. You've read historical articles that in the future, people will treat you as a primary source of what happened on that moment. Why is it significant? Because the our world is filled with moments like this. Our history is filled with moments like this. These catalytic intersections in the timeline of humanity that changes the course and direction of time. History is a reminder to us. September 11 is a reminder to us so often about how the past shapes our future. And that's why it's so important that before we see it as a story, before we see it as a narrative, before we see it as a nice thing to remember as you gather around the turkey this Christmas, Christmas is first and foremost a historical event that changed the reality of the world. Christmas is first and foremost a historical event that changed the reality of a world. Why do you celebrate Christmas? Now today, friends, It's a day where I've gratuitously written a sermon that I really enjoy. And I feel like God has put on my heart as well. But it's a sermon packed with history. Now, so many times, there are times when I talk about history and I apologize for it. I'm like, I'm sorry to bore you all with some history, uh, but we're just going to talk about the Bible history for a second. Some people have come up to me and said, oh, we actually really love that part of the sermon. So in response to those people, we now have three hours of history coming at you, friends. No, not at all. But I believe that one thing I wanted to wrestle with today is Jesus' identity as the king of history. The king of history. If i get that next slide up. That'd be great, Jane. The king of history. Calf, I'll leave that there for you. Thank you. Why? Because I think before Christmas can become anything, before Christmas can become anything, before it can become a reality, we first have to recognize it's a historical truth. But this isn't true for everyone. In fact, the Bible isn't a historical truth for everyone. The well-known atheist Richard Dawkins would write this, the difference between Dan Brown and the gospel is that Dan Brown, who wrote The Da Vinci Code and uh, The Lost Symbol, is that Dan Brown is modern fiction and the gospels are ancient fiction. Richard Dawkins goes on to say, it is even possible to mount a serious though not widely supported historical case that Jesus never lived at all. In years to come, if someone said to me, September 11 never happened, and that it was a conspiracy and that these towers never actually existed, you, many of you, and I would join them in saying, no, 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 that's not true. I was there. I've even been to New York. I was a part of that moment. But Richard Dawkins does present a problem for us, friends, that is represented by a minority of atheists, but I think by some people in this room. The question of, did, Christ- did Christmas really matter? Did it really happen? Because if it didn't happen, I don't think it does matter. If Christmas is not first and foremost a historical narrative of an event that changed the reality of the world, then can I just highlight what you're doing right now is really confusing. Coming to church on a Sunday, we are fools friends if this is not historically true. Because I believe that when we can first see the Christian narrative, the biblical narrative, as both divine, but also historical. We recognize, friends, that we aren't rocking up today, crossing our fingers, hoping this is true. We are resting in a narrative that has biblical and historical evidence that this happened. And if it happened, it demands that something change in our life. great uh, bishop from England, a guy named N.T. Wright, a uh, really famous New Testament theologian, says this. He says, I believe... I believe that the historical quest for Jesus is a necessary and non-negotiable aspect of Christian discipleship. I believe that the historical quest for Jesus is necessary and a non-negotiable aspect of Christian discipleship. What does this mean? It means, friends, that if you're a Christian and you thought that you could leave history in year 12, N.T. Wright challenges you. And he says, actually, the practice of history is the role of every Christian. To not just believe what someone else says about Jesus, but to discover the real and living Jesus who lived, breathed, and walked the, the grounds and walked the very land of Israel that we call that nation today. So how do we know that Christmas happened? How do we know that the Bible offers us a history to be believed? How do we know Thank you so much, Calvin. Can we hear it up for Calvin and Tracy, ladies and gentlemen, solving techn- technological problems left and seven? And so today I want to offer two things. I want to discuss two things that hopefully will make sense as we go on. First of all, why can we trust in Christmas? Why can we trust the Christian narrative, is the Christmas narrative is not just this nice thing you tell around the fire or whatever you do at Christmas time on this Christmas Eve? Why can we trust that Jesus was real? And often, the second question we need to address today is this. How do we respond to the reality of Jesus? Why do we trust that Jesus was real? And how do we respond to the reality of Jesus? So why can we trust that Jesus was real? Now, this is the moment that I've been waiting for my whole life where I can just kind of nerd out with you for a second and introduce you to one of my favorite things, which is history. I'm a student of history. I graduated with a Bachelor in Ancient and Modern History from the University of Queensland. This is my jam. If you don't like history or you want to fall asleep, don't because I can see you. Lean in and uh, and listen because I think, friends... We need to be a people who can robustly explain that this is not wishful thinking, that this is a historical narrative we can step into. See, as a student of history, I've found that the Christian faith, that the Christian faith should not be protected from public scrutiny. I believe that what we believe in at Christmas time, what we believe in the Bible, stands up to public scrutiny, and we should welcome people's questions. We should welcome the statements by Richard Dawkins who questions whether this is fiction or this is real because I've tested it. Historians have tested it and they haven't found the story wanting. They found an overabundance of evidence that points something happened 2,000 years ago in the Middle East and it changed the course of history. Why can you have this confidence today? How come you can stand on the idea that Christianity doesn't offer a nice idea or a good moral story, but a historical narrative that you have been woven into and are a part of today? Well, this is a good question. So as a historian, there are three reasons why we can actually know that there is a historical validity to what we believe. The first is that there is actually historical documentation. Secondly, there's eyewitness accounts. And thirdly, the criterion of embarrassment. First, historical documentation. Now, for those of you who, unlike me, are not nerds in history, you might be like, why are we talking about historical documentation? Well, there are three ways that we can really know anything about the past. The first is something called primary sources. This is my jam right now. I feel like I'm back in teaching class again. Some of you have already switched off. Stay with me, because we're going to test it at the end of the service. <laughs> There's this thing called primary sources. And a primary source is a source that was written around or in the time of history you were studying. Your history textbook, which you fell asleep with in school, was not a primary source. A primary source was written by someone in that time. The second way we know about history is we know by secondary sources. Secondary sources are things that are authored by people using primary sources to write assumptions. So like your history textbook, that is a secondary source. The third way we know about history is the National Geographic Channel. But we're not going to go too much into that today. But the What I want to argue is that often what we think is true about the historical Christian narrative is this. We think that we are depending on the Bible alone to prove that what happened actually happened. Now, as Christians, should that be enough? Well, there is some thinking in Christianity that, yes, sola scriptura, scripture alone should be enough to prove that God is who He says He was. The blessing of being a historian is I know that you don't have to just rely on the Bible to know that what the Bible says happened happened actually refers to real life events. In fact, there are, uh, there, are a couple, there are many different sources of primary sources, people who had eyewitnesses account, or claimed they knew people of eyewitness account, who backed what the Bible says, who actually were non-Christians. So let me be clear. There are historical sources of people who are non-Christians, did not believe in Jesus, who backed up the historical events of the Bible. Now some of you are like, ah, oh, I don't know. So this is the part where your eyes are going to glaze over. But just for a mini historical flex, I'm going to take you there. Some primary sources were written by historians such as a guy named Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman historian. He wrote a lot about what happened in the first century AD in ancient Palestine, now known as Israel and Palestine. And what happens in in a lot of his writing is that he refers to historical events that are happening around the center of what he wants to talk about, which is mainly the Roman story. Tacitus was a Roman orator and he was a public official. And he writes this in one of his writings known as the Annals in Book 15. He says, Consequently, there was something happening in Jerusalem that Emperor Nero was wanting to get rid of. He goes on to say this, that Christus, which is a name that he uses for Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So I want to, I want to highlight, this. this is a Roman historian who did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, never came to know Jesus, and rejected the Christian faith, who writes a historical narrative at the time that it claims to have occurred, referencing what we already know, that was a man named Jesus Christ who suffered and died at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Why do I say this? Already, friends, we have non-Christian evidence that Richard Dawkins doesn't know what he's talking about history, that there is proof that Jesus was a human being who roamed the earth 2,000 years ago. Not only do we have Greco-Roman sources, so sources that were not Christian, we also have sources from the Jewish world as well. And a guy named Josephus, who was not only a priest, but a Jewish scholar, goes on to write, at this time, there was a wise man called Jesus. Now, I want to highlight Josephus never came to know Jesus as his Lord or his Savior. He never believed in Christianity. He writes this in his book of Antiquities and is considered an authoritative historian living at the time of Christ who wrote about that time with authority and is used as a primary source. Why do I say this? I say this because it is not... It is not uncommon for us to actually say history backs that Jesus not only existed, not only that he was real, but that we can believe that something significant happened in this moment. Josephus mentions him a couple times in his work known as the Antiquities. There's another guy, I'm going to keep moving fast, called Pliny the Younger, who had a personal relationship with Emperor Trajan. And this guy would write to Emperor Trajan about what he was witnessing. And in this moment, he documents to Emperor Trajan what he is noticing about the Christians who are being persecuted under the emperor's reign. During this time of Pliny the Younger, who died around 113 AD, they think, there's there's this sense that he starts to highlight how Christians are dying. That they're being dressed up in animal costumes and being fed to lions in in the arena. All because they also, at times, were asked to curse this person called Christ. He even documents that some of these Christians went on to curse Christ. He doesn't call Christ as a fictitious narrative, but as you read through his story, through his histories, it's clear that Jesus Christ was a figure who the Roman world were aware of, who knew, and who caused a disruption in the ancient world. Why do I say all these things? Number one, because some of you look really tired and I thought you could use some extra sleep this morning. I say these things because, friends, I don't believe that as Christians we can walk blindly and go, I just believe because I believe. I just believe because, you know, it's just what I've always grown up with. I think as Christians, we need to have a robust enough faith that we're not crossing our fingers that Jesus existed. We're not crossing our fingers that this man named Jesus roamed the earth. That there is historical documentation that leans heavily into the ancient world testifying that 2,000 years ago there was a disruption in the Middle East and a man named Jesus Christ was at the center. And ever since there's been this, what they would call a cult or a sect of these Christians, these little Christs who cannot be killed or stopped. They seem to grow no matter how many lions their followers are fed to. This means that we know that there are historical documentation that back what we seem to understand, that Jesus Christ existed and was real. But not only are there non-Christian and secular documents that point to this truth, friends, there are also uh, eyewitness accounts. There are eyewitness accounts that begin to say and testify who Jesus was. Now, the majority of the eyewitness accounts come from what we know today as the Gospels. In fact, one guy in the Gospel of Luke, who was a physician, the writer, the guy of the book of Luke, we believe, is called Luke, hence the name, writes this at the very start of what he begins to write. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Already, what is he doing there? He's referring to the fact that many historians have already begun to undertake recounting the works of Jesus Christ or referring to him as we've already seen just as they were handed down to us by those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, writes Luke, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, the beginning of the Gospel of Luke starts with an amazing claim from the writer of the book of Luke. I am a physician who has done the work of finding out what happened. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we think someone just sat down and like, God, what do you want to say today? And suddenly they came out with like 30 chapters of information that they wrote. That isn't how the book of Luke was formed. The book of Luke was formed by, we believe, a physician named Luke who went through the Middle East researching and understanding different accounts. In fact, they believe that he used the gospel of Mark as one source, but also used other sources as well. They have different letters and different names that are historically verifiable to have existed to discern what actually happened at the time of Jesus. Why does he write this? He doesn't write this, hey, I want to tell you a nice fictional narrative to keep you nice and warm when stuff gets hard in your life. No, he says in verse 4, so that you might know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Friends, one of the greatest questions that we need to ask ourselves is, what do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe this book actually is? When you read the story of Christmas, is it just nice? Because this is divine, and it's inspired, and it's the Word of God. But as a student of history, can I tell you what it was first written as? Not only divine, but it was written as a historical document. Right here, we are not reading someone's fictional hope for the future. We're reading a historical narrative that has been proven to be verifiable. How do we know this? Well, quick shout out to Alpha. If you've ever done Alpha, you'll know that Alpha is this great ministry which answers some of these questions. In fact, and this is a quick side note, and there's gonna be a moment of celebration. So if you, need to, if you need to warm yourself up to clap, start that warm up now. There's this sense that in Alpha this, this term, what we've had this week on Tuesday night, we ran Holy Spirit Saturday or a moment we created space for people to experience God. And this, don't clap yet, I'll tell you when, And this on Tuesday night, we saw four people go from not believing in Jesus Christ to believing in Jesus Christ because they'd asked the question, they'd encountered Jesus and they knew he was real. Over the next two weeks, friends, because of Alpha, we and the ministry in the Holy of the Holy Spirit during that program, we're going to baptize five people for the first time through Alpha program who've come to recognize Jesus as Lord all because this program doesn't run away from scrutiny but runs towards and says there are answers to these tough questions. How good is God? Amen? Amen. I want to encourage you when we do Alpha again next year and again the year after, who are you praying for? Who are you believing in? You know at Alpha this year what happened, there's this beautiful series, the second episode called Who is Jesus? And they step into this historical practice where they say one of the reasons we can trust the Gospels is because of historical criticism, sorry, textual criticism. Now, for those of you who glazed over at history and you're like, Michael, you're losing me. Stay with me. Stay with me. The reward is coming. There's no really actually any reward. That's just a bait and switch. There's this sense where textual criticism is a way we know and understand how to trust historical documents. It's a historical way of testing how do we know what we know about history. And so it applies and factors through three things. Textual criticism looks at the number of copies of the early texts that we have and the time gap between the original document being written and the earliest copy we have. Okay. Now, let me explain how this works. For the works of Herodotus or Thucydides, who are chief and authoritarian historians of the time of ancient Greek, believed to have written around 500 B.C., 500 BC, these guys are writing. The earliest copy of their writings we have are dated at 900 AD. Over 1,300 years after they were written, we have the copy of what they have. And people trust that they are the words of Herodotus and Thucydides. We have Tacitus, who there is a 1,000-year lapse between what we, when we know he wrote it and the earliest copy of his manuscript. And we only have 20 copies of those. Caesar's Gallic Wars, which were a seminal work for me as I study ancient Rome. There is a 950 year lapse from when we believe Caesar wrote it to our earliest copy of that historical document. We only have nine to 10 copies. You go to the New Testament, and they were believed to be penned around 40 to 100 AD. The earliest manuscript we have is 130 AD, which is a 30 year gap. And we have more than 5,300 Greek copies of that original testament. When we say this, the reason why this is important is because the Bible holds up stronger as a historical document than many of the other primary sources historians claim to be true. In fact, most secular and Christian historians agree on this. The Bible is a historical document that can be trusted as its opinion and insight into first century Judaism. John Dixon says it like this, It is true that historians take the Christian agenda into account when they analyze the New Testament writings, just as they do the biases in Tacitus and Josephus. But it is not the case that historians place Christian writings in a special category called religion and go, Well, that's religious. Let's forget it. No. After centuries of scrutiny, serious historians have been unable to raise evidential proof that the Gospels don't provide historical proof of Christ. Historians do see the Gospels as valuable historical texts. My argument would be, friends, anyone that doesn't believe the Bible is a valuable historical text has not studied history. F.F. Bruce goes on and he underscores this. He says, The evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors. The authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would be genuinely regarded, would would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. And yet it's questioned, it's pulled apart. Yet I was never taught to question in all my time in history of Caesar's Gallic Wars, ever. It was taken as that's what he wrote. Why do I say this? Because friends, even non-Christian secular historians, a guy named uh, Jens Schroeter, who's a German, and I would give you his quote other than the fact that will put you to sleep and it's really complicated, but look him up. He actually says that, that anyone that thinks that the gospels do not provide insight into first century Judaism is not a serious historian. And he is an atheist secular historian. Why do I say this? Because friends, the hope of what I'm trying to do now is for those of you who are Christians, you can have a confidence you can have a confidence that what the Bible claims to have happened historically has started and continues to be tested, scrutinized, and hold up against historical fact. Building on this, the final category is this, the criterion of embarrassment. The criterion of embarrassment. What does this mean? This means that there are things that the Bible claims to have happened that if someone was to sit down and write out and make up this narrative, it would be an embarrassing truth that would not win anyone to its cause. What do I mean? Well, one of these is the resurrection, but we'll talk about that at Easter. Another example of the criterion of embarrassment is the virgin birth, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. People might think, well, the reason why it had to be a virgin birth and, and that all happened is because you know, they were trying to convince the Jews or the Greeks that, that that's, you know, Jesus was the Son of God. Not true. Not true. The virgin birth, or this document of the virgin birth, if you read Matthew 1 and 2, if you read Luke 1, 2, 3, and 4, what you start to uh, uncover is that this writing of Jesus' birth is actually more central and visceral than any other Jewish writing. If you compare the birth of Jesus Christ to any other birth or or figure in Jewish religious texts, you'll find that they're far more descriptive than they are in any other text. To say that the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary and that her and her husband were not known to each other was not a way that you spoke of the birth of someone that should be venerated. This was seen to be sensual. It was seen to be overly, maybe a bit sexual. And it would not be a way that you would convince the Jewish readers that Jesus was actually born of the Virgin Mary. It would have been offensive to them. So we go, well, clearly the writer of the Gospels must be writing to the Greco-Roman world because, you know, it was, it was central and that it may, maybe that was more directed at them. So they made up this story to appeal to Greco-Roman readers. Not so. Whilst it was too central for the Jews, it wasn't central enough for the Romans and the Greeks. Any of you who have ever studied Roman and Greek history know that it's a very sexual history. They don't pull any punches when they want to describe things and they have no timidity around saying the depravity or the looseness of gods when they're interacting sexually with humanity. And, and what we find is that the... The the Romans and the Greeks wouldn't have found it sexual enough and that the Jews would have found it too sensual. And so there's this story that isn't written in a way for anyone to believe because they would find it embarrassing unless it was true. Unless it was true. This story could not have been made up to convince anyone of its truth because it would have been shunned unless it actually happened and was merely a documentation, documentation of the events that took place. Back in 2011, President Obama's birth was questioned. President Obama's birth was questioned. I don't know if you remember this. And he had to hop up in front of a press conference and he held up his birth certificate. And he had to say, guys, I promise you I was born in Hawaii. And and he's like, can I get back to governing the presidency? People claim he was born in Africa or born around the country. The reason was is that people were questioning the, the legitimacy of his birth to govern the nation. And people still do that of Jesus Christ. But what the birth of Jesus does is it doesn't mean that he wasn't legitimate, but it was a historical narrative that legitimizes his claim to be the King of Kings and Son of God. Why do I say this? I say this, friends, because if you are a Christian in the room, there is a measure, there is a measure of confidence that you can have, not only in the Gospels, but in the Christian story. That you should not be humiliated or feel foolish to believe that what Jesus and the Gospels claim to have happened to be true. They stand up to historical scrutiny. They hold their weight. But John Dixon says this, The call of the Christian is to confidence, not arrogance. So often in Christianity, the way we approach was, "Is Jesus true? Is this real?" is that we're like, "Yeah, of course he's real." And we use the story or the, the, fa- the facts of history to beat people over the head to say, "You should believe this because you're silly not to." The reason why I establish this isn't so you walk out into your workplace and start throwing around facts with this arrogant belief that the Christian faith is the only two things, but with a confidence. You are able to welcome your friends to scrutinize the story of the Gospels, to test it, to push it, to come with you to Alpha and ask questions. Because historians have been asking questions for thousands of years and the Gospel of Jesus Christ has not been found wanting. This is the story that we have. This is the truth that we have. In fact, what I love is there is this quote by a guy named uh, Rian Rue and Dan Patterson who say this, perhaps the most compelling reason to trust the Gospels is, is the colossal figure of Jesus himself. Anyone who could invent such a moral genius would have to be a literary luminary beyond the likes of Shakespeare. There is a gravity to his teaching, a singular caliber to the life, and the ring of truth in his redemptive interactions with the men and women of the Gospels. If Jesus did not exist, or was made, or or was unhinged, or some evil imposter, and not who he claimed to be, then it is nearly impossible task to explain the source of the revolutionary teaching and explosion of the Jesus movement. How do we know Jesus was real? Because, friends, the testament of history, the testament of the New Testament, the the historical evidence leans into the reality that this stuff happened. Now, why do I say that? Can I be honest? If you're a non-Christian in the room or you're exploring faith, I didn't say that so now you'd walk out of the room and be like, well, that solves that. I'm now going to start following Jesus because he said a bunch of stuff about Tacitus and Herodotus. That solved all my problems. I have no doubt that that hasn't happened. But what I hope has happened is a couple things. That those of you who are followers of Jesus know that you can have a humble confidence that we are not believing a fictitious narrative that we are not standing upon someone's made-up story about why we believe what we believe. And for those of you who are exploring the Christian faith, that there is a welcoming to test this out, to ask the questions, to push on it and ask, is Jesus real? And we believe that history says a cacophonous yes. But how do we know Jesus was real? Because I believe history points to it. But there is a bigger problem here. Why do we need to know that history points to Jesus? I have a couple more quotes, but for the sake of time, I'll say this. Because Jesus makes a bold claim. He makes a bold claim in John chapter 14 where he says this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to know God, don't go looking at scriptures. You can look directly at me. The reason why we should find the historical Jesus is because we need to know if this claim can be tested Some of you have been looking for God, and I've got to tell you the reason why God wrote himself into the story is so you would find him in Jesus. You want to know his character? You want to know what he's like? You want to know how he feels about certain issues? Look at Jesus. That's the reason why the historical quest for Jesus Christ isn't the result of some nerdy 32-year-old pastor who likes reading books about stuff that puts you to sleep. It's all of our responsibility to test and push on the historicity of Jesus so we might know who God is what he is like and we might follow him truly friends to everyone here today there are two responses that we have to the historical narrative of Jesus Christ the two responses are this the first one the first one is a challenge the second is an invitation the first is a challenge the second is an invitation The first challenge goes to those of you in the room who are Christians. Those of you in the rooms who follow Jesus. And let me explain. There's a great movie. Actually, it's a terrible movie. Let me change that. There is a movie that you should not watch called Talladega Nights that stars Will Farrell. Has anyone seen it? Put your hand down. You should not have opened up to that. There's this great moment in Talladega Nights where um, Will Farrell's praying. And he goes, sweet, six-pound, little red-skinned baby Jesus in the manger. And he's praying to baby Jesus. Then his wife stops him and she's like, honey, you can't pray to baby Jesus. You've got to pray to you know King Jesus. And he's like, I can pray to whatever Jesus I want. He's my Jesus, and I'll pray to the one that I like the best. And I raise that because I think that's actually how most of us interact with God. You know, as a pastor, I hear this all the time. I believe, I believe in the Jesus of love, of grace. You know, that's that's the Jesus I believe in. If Jesus is a historical fact, he doesn't change or get molded by your hope for comfort. He either was who he said he was or he was nothing at all. But Jesus doesn't get to be referred to as this nice cultivation of our imagination, what we want a savior to be. Because friends, I believe the challenge of the historical Jesus is this. Christian nominalism is no longer a choice. What do I mean by Christian nominalism? Christian nominalism. Those of us who rock up to church, who just are drifting through life, who believe that this doesn't change anything and we're just occupying a seat because it's what we've done forever. A couple of years ago when I planted New Life Brisbane, I had the opportunity to be interviewed on ABC Radio. And this lady said to me, why would you plant a church when, when the church is dying? And I, I just had a moment of Holy Spirit clarity. It was not my intelligence, I swear. But just this thing where I said, the, the church isn't dying. Nominal Christianity is dying. Because the church, it's becoming more and more uncomfortable to be a Christian. It's becoming harder. And it's those who don't just believe in a God of comfort and goodness, but those who believe in God who is real and exists, that will be able to persevere in the future that is coming. Friends, I'm going to tell you this. Maybe this is going to shrink our service down to one service next week. And we're, you know, we're going to have to be like, well, you know, no one comes to New York anymore because we're not Christianly nominal. And that'll be okay. Because let me tell you this. People who only worship Jesus from comfort will not like the future of where our world is heading. It's becoming harder to be a Christian. And the only hope you'll have is a God who suffers with you, is a God of mercy, of justice, who is angry about things of sin and loves holiness and purity, who invites you in because of love. That's the God that will carry us through, not a God we created in our own mind. So I've got to ask a question and a challenge to every Christian in the room today. Do you believe in the Jesus who existed or in the Jesus of your own creation? This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 14, Any who would come after me, I beckon, come die. Pick up your cross and follow me. Have you picked up your cross, friends? And are you following Jesus? He's not interested in our comfort. He's longing for our obedience. Because he wants to lead us to life and life to the fullness. Nothing is more confusing to a non-Christian world than Christians who declare the truths we declare and live a life of apathy. Apathy. He's inviting you in. The man who, became a ba- who came as a baby and grew up to be a savior. Now those of you in the room who are non-Christians and you're like, holy smokes, this guy yells a lot. To you, I will take a different tone because I, I would say Jesus takes a different tone to the irreligious, to those who are not yet choosing to follow, who have not yet claimed to know. See, to the religious, he's very harsh. He's like, guys, you've got to get this right. Don't be lukewarm. But to those who are yet to know Jesus, he says this, you'll get me the best. Because I came for the broken. I came for the down and out. I didn't just come to tell them to be better. I came to give them a new heart. It's a great quote by C.S. Lewis, which challenges us to actually ask the question, who is Jesus? And some of you Some of you need to hear this today. C.S. Lewis says this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing, and I say this to all the non-Christians in the room, that people often say about Jesus, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with someone who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is an invitation to you today where Jesus looks you in the eye and he says, I'm either a lunatic, I'm a liar, or I'm the Lord. And I'm the Lord, not of oppression, but of freedom. I'm the Lord that knows your your story, knows how you sinned today, knows what you did last night, and He longs for you to come and know His love. He chases you down. He longs to be part of your story. Why? Because He knows you can't do it on your own. Do you know Him today? Not as an idea, not as a comforting blanket you wrap around yourself when life gets hard, but is He your Lord Because only a Lord that will allow us to die to ourselves and live for something greater can offer us the life we so desperately need. Do you know Jesus today, friends? But he is coming again for those who know they're broken, but know the one who makes them whole. Do you need to be challenged? Or is Jesus standing before you today with an invitation? Come, be made clean. This is the story of Christmas. This is the story of hope. And it's a story we now celebrate at communion. It's interesting taking communion at Christmas time because we remember this time of year as the start of Jesus' earthly life. And today we celebrate its end. Because you can't pray to six pound baby Jesus. Can I tell you why? He's no longer around. That baby grew to be a man, that man grew to be a Messiah that Messiah claimed to be king. He claimed to be a king that didn't come to build a kingdom of force, but a kingdom of grace. Not a kingdom of violence, but a kingdom of hope. And the night that he was betrayed, he gathered his disciples around him and he took bread. And he said, let me tell you about how you're gonna remember who I am. Don't rip yet. He said, there'll be a moment when you gather, you wanna know how you know my kingdom? You wanna know how you celebrate me? It won't be through fanfare and through victory parades of my successful invasion. It be through brokenness. He says, break this bread. That when you remember me as your king, you remember I was not a king who claimed a throne before I claimed a cross. I was broken on your behalf. I was torn apart for your sin so that you might know wholeness. Jesus picked up a cup. And he said, when you drink of this cup, do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because his cup signifies that his blood was shed so yours didn't have to be. That friends, our sin deserves death, but we get life and life to the full. Do you know the life today? And I just feel my heart to challenge someone in Christianity. Or is your faith boring? Are you sick of Christianity? Are you sick of just doing this thing, going in and out? Can I be honest? God's probably sick of your Christianity too. And he invites you into something that's revolutionary, that's life-changing, that claims that our king died before he claimed the throne, that we might have life and life to the full. So when we take the body, we pause and we remember the Savior that was broken for our transgressions and for our shame. So we just rip back that first layer right now and just take that wafer biscuit with me. And I invite you to wait. Wait on God. Hold that wafer in your hand. Because here's the thing. I want to ask you, don't take it if you don't believe it. It's an open table, friends. Anyone can take. But by taking it, we're choosing to believe something is happening here. Do you believe he died for you? And if not, there's an invitation before you eat to ask Jesus for forgiveness. Let's do that now. Jesus Christ, we come before you. We ask that you'd forgive us of our waywardness, of our sin and our shame. Father, we would know you're the king who came and humble as a baby, that we might know the life of a king, of sons and daughters of God. We ask your forgiveness now. Friends, take... Eat. This is the body of Christ broken for you. And when you're ready, would you stand with me? This is the blood of Christ. I say this every service, but you can't. if Jesus isn't real, friends, what we're about to do is so weird. We're drinking someone's blood symbolically. You should be weirded out by that, unless it's real. That we do this to remember that by His stripes we are healed, that by His shed blood we are free, that you can have forgiveness and redemption at the cross of Jesus. So friends, this is the symbol of Christ's blood shed for you. Let's eat, let's drink together right now. So gracious God, we wait upon you now. remember not a baby in a manger, but a baby sent to be a king. A king of hope. A king of history. A king of life. Do you know him today, friends? Do you know him today? In response, we're just going to have Jai just play over us for a couple of moments before we worship. I'll just ask. Maybe you need to get right with God. Just wait on him. He's present with us now. And his offer is for you. Why don't you just pray this prayer? Good shepherd, Come find me. I respond to you today. Let's worship God together. And let's just listen in this moment as the music plays over us before we sing.